Time to get do. p.m. in London, where our guest is. Very exciting show for you today. How you doing, Abby? Doing great, Mike. Everybody, welcome to Dosed. Thanks for joining us today. You know, it seems like everything is always in a state of getting worse, Mike. (laughs) Every day, new headlines, new events, deep in that feeling that we're living in a dystopian hellscape with no hope of things turning around. Two months ago, there was no baby formula on the shelves. Last month, it was the horrific mass shootings. This month, it's the evisceration of women's rights. Brought to you by the very same system we're told is the greatest democracy in the world. Why are things this way? And why is there an echo that I'm hearing? (laughs) Or to put it more bluntly, why do things suck so bad? Mike, do you hear that echo? I don't. Oh, weird. Well, you know what? It adds to the ambiance here (laughs) of how, you know, we're like in 1984. I'm like projecting through the, the telescreen here. Um, You know, of course, all these things are tied together. The power of an extremist right wing to force women to have babies, growing inequality, and the so-called diseases of despair that plug, that plague, rather, everywhere in this country. The solutions to this living nightmare lie in diagnosing the problem. To do that, I want to get a deeper understanding of the moment we are in, While we often see it described as late-stage capitalism, my guest today has a much more refined explanation, which she calls neo-feudalism. I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Jody Dean. Jody Dean is an American political theorist and professor in the political science department at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in New York State. She's the author of several books, including The Communist Horizon and Comrade an essay on political belonging. But she's also well known for developing theories that analyze this moment of capitalism in new ways. Jody, thank you so much for joining us on Dost. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to be part of this conversation. As am I, and I think it's a really important conversation to have, especially at this moment when there is kind of this mass hopelessness that has taken hold People are just 
I think, taken aback by how something like this could happen. I guess let's just start by getting your perspective. You know, what has been on your mind since the overturning of Roe? And what is your reaction to just what's been happening, especially on behalf of the complete unwillingness of the Biden administration to do a fucking thing? Um, yeah, it's a... It's it's shocking, right? It's it's like horrifying and shocking, but not surprising all at the same time. And one of the things that I've been um, kind of pondering is like how weird it's been that 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 there's like been a tiny little bit of hope that well maybe things won't be so bad. Like and that this kind of tiny little bit of hope um, has been a has led to a sort of denial of reality. And what I mean is like when we think about the initial blocking of Obama's nominee, right? When, um, it was Merrick Garland when, you know, he was, when Obama's nominee didn't get even, um, to be considered, right? It seemed like, like that seemed really clear. Okay. Things are, are terrible and getting worse. The, the so-called democratic system is utterly broken. Um, but then that kind of feeling sort of goes away. And then it's like the whole clown show of the Brett Kavanaugh getting confirmed. And then the, and then the appointment of, you know, somebody right out of the handmaid's tale, like Amy Coney Barrett. And so all of this stuff was clearly, this is horrible. This is going to be horrible for so many reasons. And abortion is one of the main ones. And yet still, even when the Alito draft um, opinion was leaked, I don't know, I kind of, I felt or I felt a vibe that seemed to feel that, oh, well, it can't really be that bad. Like each step, it's like, well, it can't really be that bad. But but actually, it always ends up worse. And so that's the thing I've been struck with. Like, how how long do we kind of keep a sort of delusional faith that the institutions that we know full well are utterly corrupted and broken will work? And so maybe this time folks will realize, look, it's an illusion to think that there's any possibility that they're working. It's such a good point, Jody. that you all it's like human nature that you just want to cling to hope and optimism, even though consciously and subconsciously, I think we know how bad it is and how it does continue to get worse. But even I, you know, I totally agree with you. I just kept thinking, well, there's no way like even symbolically that the Democrats would let this happen, at least rhetorically, the Biden administration is going to have to do some sort of action to secure the midterms because they know that it's just a complete disaster. It's in free fall. But I was wrong. I mean, I just continue to be proven wrong in the face of even knowing how bad things are because it's so hard to to really accept where we are sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's... it's- it, this part's just, it, it's utterly frustrating and maddening. Like, like in the very initial moments, right, the, the Democrats start saying, oh, you know, we can't stand for this. But then it's like, well, but we're not going to do anything. It's like real. And that's the way it's been through every one of these. Like, like they didn't put up the fight that they should have for any of these Republican appointments. And then when it comes down to it, it's like exactly what was going to happen, namely the women's hard fought for and hard won right to abortion is taken away. And women are now put into a position of forced pregnancy. And they're like, well, um, Nancy Pelosi ends up still endorsing a candidate who's an out and out um, sort of anti-choice, anti-abortion person. And the president's like, I can't do anything. Like this is, the, um, it just shows, it lets us know 
that honestly, they were never on the side of women and working people. That was always this little bit of hope they're throwing out to us and that we swallow you know, at our peril. Yeah, I mean, they had a gun to the heads of the left, basically. The, the gun to our heads saying you have to vote for us because this right is hanging in the balance while never doing anything to secure those rights or codify them into law. Meanwhile, you have, uh, let's be fair to Nancy Pelosi, she did come out there and read a, a hard-hitting poem by an Israeli soldier <laughs> standing on the ashes of an ethnically cleansed, demolished Palestinian village. Somehow, I, I guess that was really symbolic for her at this moment in time. Meanwhile, Biden, let you know, let's give him some credit. He is overseeing a, a rushed nomination now of an anti-abortion district court judge uh, to compromise with some sort of Mitch McConnell deal. You really cannot make this stuff up. It is beyond belief. And meanwhile, Kamala Harris is doing interviews. You know, Dan- Dana Bash was just like, OK, so are you going to act now? And she's like, do what now? Do what now? It's like, I'm sorry, do we have to tell you what you can do as the executive branch? I mean, it's just, it's like, <laughs> Mike, were you going to add something earlier? Oh, no, no. I just didn't know if uh, Jody had seen that um, Biden is going to appoint this uh, anti-choice federal judge to a lifetime appointment. And that also the White House basically came out yesterday and said that they're actually not going to do anything because it'll be too polarizing before the midterm elections. This is... It, it 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 just it boggles the mind. I mean, it was. I thought that um, the end of last week they were saying, "Oh, this is going to be important in the midterms for you know this," and that they were asking people to give them money, like, "Oh, give us now money so we can be reelected to fight for your rights to abortion." And now they're saying, you know, to try to maybe make it into a law, maybe pass better laws, find ways. And now they're not even doing that. I, I mean, that seemed the. I'm, I guess I'm just I'm, I'm hard, horrified and speechless. And this lets us know that, um, you know, once again, we cannot have any hope in um, the mainstream electoral polit- political system in the U.S. It's completely well, it's serving the class it wants to serve. And that's the capitalist class. Well, exactly. And that is actually the foundation of the Supreme Court. Um that is the very purpose of it. I mean, it's exactly. you know, this crystal ball going back to this 300-year-old document to protect the slave-owning aristocracy. And over the court's existence, all it really has served to do is protect the ruling class. Any landmark watershed ruling that has been good and reflective of progressivism has been due to militants in the streets, mass movements, basically having the judges fear ruling any other way. But really, if you look at the wide swath of the history of the court, it has always um, served the corporate elite. And and actually, most of all the court cases that it hears are for corporations' rights. Um, And of course, you know, who can forget the (laughs) picking our president, George W. Bush, you know, upholding Jim Crow, I mean, upholding the internment of Japanese People, So it, it goes on and on and on of just horrific rulings. But I think people point to like, you know, gay marriage and things like Roe v. Wade and they're like, oh, no, see, the court is good. And it really is not. And, and it really is. Um, it really is the most undemocratic. I mean, it seems so obvious to just say something that's just the most obvious thing in the world that like unelected lords with lifetime appointments should have final say that can override anything. I mean, really, it is like the final 
overruling of any sort of progressivism that could happen. Like, let's say Medicare for all is magically passed from an invisible, you know, some person that will never actually get into the executive branch. That's what the court is there to do. They can actually just have like a coup and override any of these things as somehow unconstitutional. Yeah, and one of the things um, that I, I did notice, um, though I, I think it happened, um, was it yesterday or, or earlier today? Uh, must have been yesterday, um, that the court is also gutting the EPA. And so this means that um, the ability to um, regulate uh, fossil fuels um, is now deeply hindered and um, it really makes any kind of climate change policy at the, at the national level basically impossible. So they're definitely um, doing their best to create a essentially a neo-feudal health. <laughs> You've got armed people who can use their guns however they need to carry their guns um, protect their women who are stuck in the home as the um, climate continues to warm up and the you know, the skies darken and the soil is depleted and the water dries up. I mean, it, it's, it's almost like it's like, oh, we believe in the end of the world here. We'll just hasten it. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, why not to them? Yeah. Exactly. Like Mike Pompeo. I mean, such an apocalyptic They want the vision. apocalypse to yeah, come. Yeah. Jesus is in it. It's pretty creepy when you think about that. And I want to get into religion in a second, but I'm, ho- I'm so happy you brought up what is ha- happening and what is impending because this is Roe v. Wade is the first on the chopping block. There are several other rulings, as we know from Clarence Thomas's draft, that they, yeah. you know, they're talking about gay marriage. They're talking about the right to contraception. contraception yeah. <laughs> and, and like you said, the EPA has been completely stripped down to the point where, you know, now you see this anti-BDS ruling from one of the district court judges across the country. I think it was, what was it, Wyoming? Maybe I'm misremembering the state. But basically, this is about to go to the Supreme Court. And I think that we can foresee, you know, the writings on the wall of where they're going to rule on that. And that's basically going to say boycotts are not constitutionally protected rights under the First Amendment, which was ruled back during the Montgomery bus boycott. So we're, we're entering into a new, uh, brave new world, And I think most alarming is that they're going to review Lawrence versus Texas, which would automatically trigger in over a dozen states something like 10 to 20 year jail sentences for same sex relationships. Yeah. I mean, so let's let's assess the political reality in this country, because this is not just I mean, of course, it is a minority coup that has had legislative power. But I think that the far right is a political reality. You know, while it is a minority, there are tens of millions of people living in this country who are sexist, who are racist. I think that after Trump's election, people became much more emboldened, came out of the shadows, feeling free to express these views more and more. Um, At the same time, we see the political power being consolidated in every arena of politics. And I think it was a shock. I mean, not for many who have been paying attention, but I think it was a shock for a lot of people coming after eight years of Obama who Mm -hmm. we know who was put in place to placate, you know, this revolutionary upset and fervor that happened during the Bush administration, which really brought us to the brink, which was a different kind of right wing. The ruling class comes in, Obama placates everyone, but he, he did symbolically, you know, I mean, it was very incredible to have the symbolic victory of a black president in a former slave country. 
of course, the legalization of gay marriage. There was a lot of things that happened that I felt like for a lot of people, they were like, oh, okay, the Bush administration was just a blip. Like, now we're in this normal, progressing country. And then, of course, it snaps back, Jody. This isn't new. There's always this reactionary whiplash in response to anything remotely good. And, of course, we don't want to erase the war criminal legacy of Obama. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about gay marriage, the original Roe ruling. We saw waves of reactionary um, tendencies happen after these things. And and the right wing became very well organized and on the march after that. Nixon, Reagan. Why – even though it happened under Nixon, but I mean the Reagan era and beyond – why is this extreme right basically a feature of our system? Because it seems like just attributing it to a holdover of the past is not enough to really assess our current reality. Um, um, I agree with you 100%. And I think it's a super interesting question, right, to to try to understand what's been going on with the right. And um, so if I, if I try to break this into um, little pieces – One of the things that seems basically clear is that we have in the U.S. historically 20 to 25 percent of the electorate who identify as conservative or think of themselves as 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 very much on the right, as on the far right. And they may or may not be openly racist and sexist or openly homophobic. And they may think of themselves as conservative for different reasons. But we that's a that's pretty much a consistent aspect, um, like 20 or 25% being um, really conservative. Another aspect of this is that there, and and you were um, going in this direction as well, there are different kinds of conservatives that make up a kind of right-wing coalition, particularly right now, right? We can think of libertarians who, um, who associate Democrats with a big administrative state. We can think of the social and religious conservatives who um, are really very, very much about um, protecting a, or actually um, embedding and and forcing upon us a very specific model of of a gender gender and the family. And we can also think of in this um, group on the right, of um, capitalists who are just basically opportunistic, like they kind of big corporations and financiers who will give money to all sorts of different, give money to both parties and all sorts of different candidates, um, essentially to you know buy their um, members of Congress and keep them dependent on the um, campaign contributions. Um, and then we have also now, and I think this now starts to make more sense currently, is in like the last um, twelve. 15, maybe even 20 years, we have people who are sick and tired of the weakness, the elitism and the condescension of the Democratic Party. And here we might we might even consider sort of blaming um, the Clinton administration for this as they um, really specifically abandoned the working class and turned to Wall Street. So it, um, but at any rate, what we, we have this kind of of group of different people who have been able to coalesce um, as con- a conservative movement and coalesce among the Republican Party, in part because of the awfulness and weakness of the Democrats. Right? The, like the, the the interesting on the right is like they don't necessarily agree with each other, but they've been able to form an effective bloc primarily because of the absolute 
um, failure of the Democrats to um, offer anything to the working class. And you said this earlier, essentially the Democrats slogan um, is really, we're not as bad as the other guys. Um, don't vote for them. So they don't fight for working people. They don't recognize the conditions of people's lives. Um, and they get in, give in, or they engage in the kind of disgusting performative politics that you mentioned with, um, with um, Pelosi. But so in addition to all this, what to my mind is striking is that even as the conservatives aren't that many people in terms of the electorate, they have really out-organized the left and the center. And the most effective in this organizing, I would say, has been the Catholics. And I would associate this, of course, with the six Catholics on the Supreme Court, most of whom got their appointments because of the intervention and leadership of the Federalist Society, which, you know, as, as, as people know, is this network of conservative lawyers and judges and so on. And the executive vice president of the Federalist Society is um, Leonard Leo, who's a Catholic political organizer and a member of Opus Dei. And these Catholic legal organizers have played the long game. Like they've had a 50 year strategy to overturn Roe v. Wade. And part of this strategy was um, breaking Catholics away from the Democratic Party. And abortion was a key part of this. Um, it was also forming alliance with, alliances with Protestant evangelicals. Um, and so in addition to like, um, we should also, have, you know, the Federalist Society you know, has branches like in every single law school, and it uses its organization to to not just um, get people into power, but to change ways of thinking, right? To to form um, the ideas, to to let people think together, right? So they form like a, a political strategic block, but also one that's like ideological as well. And this takes patience, time, you know, the will to play the long game and use the institutions. And one other thing, obviously, is it takes um, a lot of money, massive donations. And here's where the banks and corporations come in. They pour money into the campaigns that they think are going to win. And then they make sure that whoever that they've backed is really beholden to them, beholden to them, and that they will continue to take whatever measures are necessary to benefit the rich, the corporations, the bankers and the investors. You said so many great things there, and I want to touch upon a couple of them. First, um, the intersection between religion and capitalism. You mentioned that there is kind of just uh, an exploitation on behalf of the capitalists to use religion to their advantage. You know, like I think Trump is a good example. He was a pawn and he also was using um, evangelicals as his, you know, as basically for his benefit as well. Um, but he was also being used um, to basically yeah, steamroll yeah. an agenda that they knew that he was useful for. And I think that these institutions feed off of each other with kind of magical thinking that reinforce um, these structures. I mean, you know, the idea of free will, for example, like people get what they work for. Your sins are yours and yours alone. The notion that being poor is virtuous and temporary and you can get out of it if you're a good enough person who works hard enough. Um, you mentioned the Catholic bloc. That's fascinating that that, you know, that's really who is sitting on the Supreme Court um, being born and bred from the Federalist Society. I mean, it's still surprising to me that around 20 percent of Americans are evangelicals. Um, and, and, and that's a highly politicized 
block as well. And then you have the right-wing Christian megachurches and, uh, again, highly politicized, highly activated. Um, and then you mentioned, you know, the right-wing. And I think that this is really important, too, because there is kind of a smart um, maneuvering on behalf of the right-wing, as it always has, to co-opt, le- you know, even like Marxist, like populist um, beliefs anti-war sentiment. You see that happening right now. The Steve Bannons, the Peter Thiels, even someone like Trump, who uses the rhetorical value of talking about things like anti-establishmentism, anti-war politics. Traditionally, this has always been a thing to co-opt leftists into these spaces, um, into anti-communist spaces. But then, like you said, we have uh, this adaption of neoliberalism that has been able to exploit and hijack revolutionary tendencies of identity politics, trans people, uh, black people's liberation, women's liberation, and essentially use it to fold back into the electoral system of voting for the status quo, and then corporations doing the same thing, marketing to well-intentioned liberals, basically these concepts to sell oppression back to consumers. It's it's just the most bizarre thing because it makes it so much harder to diagnose what's going on. Yeah, there's so much in what you're saying. Um, let's pick up a, a few parts of it. Um, I mean, first of all, the the corporate um, takeover and co-optation of what has long been um, real people struggle should make everyone um, really um, unhappy and suspicious because it uh, it de-radicalizes it. It says that, oh, the only problem with contemporary society is the um, what the people look like in our advertising. And as soon as that we have, um, you know, a more... Um, democratic looking demographic as soon as our the demographic of the people represented our advertising is inclusive of different sexualities and races then all the problems will be solved that's you know that's like trying to hypnotize us with really terrible ideology it's like no you know it's the exploitation of the of the corporations it's the way that they are continuously immiserating us like that's the problem but the um when the corporations um co-opt our movements that gets lost i think that's crucial i also think um you're 100% right about the um the you know politicized evangelicals something uh, <laughs> at the risk of using um you know personal experience in my answer i grew up southern baptist and um to be honest my thought was that the southern baptists and most evangelicals are not real rocket scientists right they're they're not whizzes um but the really smart hardcore people, I think, and then I don't think there's been enough attention to this, has been the organized Catholics, that they have, um, you know, and, and there there can be theological reasons for this. Like a lot of evangelicals believe in the just the power of the spirit. It's like they're spontaneists and whatever the spirit moves them, then that's the right thing to do. But the Catholics have, you know, a very old organization, patterns of interpretation and planning and a really clear set of doctrinal beliefs um, that I think has given them the fortitude to wage this long war. And I, I kind of 
worry that we haven't paid enough attention to this kind of under this current that's been going um, beneath the the radar, this slow boring, you know, of hard boards, as the um, old expression is, this this um, really strong organizational work that has been done on the side of the Catholics, and then now it's become um, even more visible. And and you are absolutely right when you say, you know, that within some of this um, religious tradition, you know, to be poor is virtuous. Um, that they don't think that economic inequality, is, they say, you know, economic equality has been there always. Um, it will be there always. Um, we are fallen creatures in a fallen world. And what we really need is the peace of God's order. And we get that through the family, um, particularly when the family is headed by a man and the wife accepts his leadership. So this is, I find, deeply, deeply frightening, um, the um, sort of current triumph of this um, Catholic theology. And I think it's going to um, keep getting worse because they're becoming um, more and more visible. You may have seen um, the guy who wrote, oh, J.D. Vance, he wrote um, Hillbilly, Hillbilly Elegy. He's campaigning directly on... Um, a slogan for the family wage, meaning women should not be in the workplace. You know, yes, it's good to pay. It's good to pay everybody more. But on the family wage, it means you're just paying men more because they're supposed to be supporting their wives. That's a real you know, a retro move that, that that's super dangerous. J.D. Vance, it's an interesting uh, example of like a totally astroturfed campaign by uh, the Peter Theolites of yeah. the world, like a totally fake thing. Again, seen as this populist renegade somehow. Quite fascinating kind of um, weird propaganda going on. But I, you bring up such a great point, which is women in the workplace versus women's subjugation. And and let's go back to like women's oppression as a feature of class society as a whole and how it's changed because we're going to focus our discussion today on this idea of new neo-feudalism and the unique features of that moment we are in. But I think that, you know, women's oppression, people have this idea, this imagery of 1950s where, you know, capitalism was all about the husband going to work, the wife staying home, um, doing the chores so he could work, raising the next generation of workers. But today, um, capitalism clearly wants women to be in the workplace, but we are still treating women like broodmares. Yeah, so exactly. So let's... Um kind of do a, you know, a little bit of a deep dive into um, kind of women and capitalism. So we, um, the initially, as capitalism um, emerges, right, as, as it, and as it emerges as um, particularly industrial, um, industrialized commodity production, domestic labor is devalued. Um, and what the, really practically what this means is that factory production increases, and as more and more people are thrown out of agricultural production and they have to sell their labor power to factory owners and get a wage in order to survive. This means that because more and more people are now not um, working on the land and, and more and more people lack 
the means um, of subsistence or they lack the ability to make what they need to survive. They have to go earn it. So literally it happens that households stop producing the use values that they have done for centuries and centuries and centuries. Right, The items that they produced at home, often by women like candles and soap or cloth, these become commodities to be purchased on the market. And so factories make them. That makes money for the capitalists and people have to buy them. And guess what? That also makes money for the capitalist. And then people aren't at home. And so they go work for the capitalist, which makes money for the capitalist. So folks have to earn money to purchase things that they used to make. And this, uh, the, the site where they used to be made now, um, the home or domestic sphere is completely devalued. So we're used to thinking then about this split between domestic and industrial production or uh, Marx also talks about that split as a split between household and social production or, you know, production that requires, um, you know, a lot of people and a large accumulation of, of, of um, you know, fixed capital. Um, we, we rightly think about this as linked to the um, sexual division of labor because the domestic sphere has been a sphere of women's work and the men's sphere has been one of paid labor. Um, and this solidified exactly as you said at the beginning in this kind of post-World War II vision of the nuclear family. But it never, ever described all households, you know, not in the U.S., not in Europe. If we just think about the U.S., like um, working class women and children, even in the 19th century, were in factories and working under horrible conditions and for terrible wages. Um, and one of the things that made these conditions especially bad for women um, is that the their husbands and fathers controlled what they basically what they could earn. They could take the, the husbands and fathers could take the wages earned by women and children because women were under the legal authority of men, right? Women couldn't own property. They couldn't sign contracts. They couldn't get a mortgage, couldn't testify in court. Obviously, they couldn't vote. I mean, people, and even in, until the, like the 1970s, after decades of women's struggles, only then were women able to even have credit cards. So um, working class men have fought for a family wage that's really important enough to support a family, but... Um, once women entered the workforce, you know, women need to start winning and did start earning wages, too. So we've got to we've got to be really critical of this, any of this effort to return to the family wage. Additionally, I was talking about the um, conditions for um, working class families. We also, of course, have to mention that black women in the U.S. have only rarely been housewives in the domestic sphere. Most of the time, um, black women have had to earn money working in other people's homes and caring for other people's children and cleaning up their messes. Um, and black women have had these domestic jobs, you know, repeating the patterns of the plantation because racist and sexist employment practices blocked them from opportunities and because black, black men were blocked from decently waged jobs available to um, white male workers. Um, some of the, the most interesting stuff written by um, black communist women in the 30s and 40s is pointing out 
their different position because black men were blocked from decently waged um, jobs. Like black men never got the family wage or only very rarely after um, they were able in the um, early fifties to get um, better jobs in the auto industry. But for the most part, they were blocked from decently waged jobs. And it's only with really fierce and committed struggle that um, um, you know black people and women have been able to access that. So since the late 70s, with the availability of birth control and abortion, the number of women in the um, engaging in paid work or in the you know, waged workplace has increased dramatically. Um, now it's a roughly 57 percent of women who are in the paid labor force and about 69% of men. So it's still more men in the paid labor force, but about 57% of all women work for an income. Um, And one of the reasons, in addition to women wanting to work, um, is the majority of households depend on income from two adults to make ends meet. And often this isn't even enough. And the adults might have to engage, have to have more than one job in order to, you know, pay the rent and pay the bills. So I think, um, In general, what we need to think about when we think about the effects of Roe now because of women's changed labor position is that it's going to be devastating for all working people, right? It's going to have a huge um, impact on women's ability to work outside the home. It's going to have a huge impact on expenses in the home, which under we're experiencing a lot of inflation right now. So we can just imagine if there's more and more mouths to feed and kids to close that and then daycare to provide, which is also super expensive. And workers know this. Right. All workers know that um, women will still have abortions because the costs of, you know, of not having them are so great. It's just going to be more and more dangerous and more and more risky for them. Um, And it's also going to increase the um, presence and power of police and surveillance in our lives, I think, in ways that. Um, we've, you know, have not yet even begun to imagine. So, um, women are, have been in the workforce now for, um, heavily in the workforce for over 40 years and it, are not going to be able to be, are not going to accept being forced back into the home, but it's going to then be a fight over, you know, how can they control their reproduction? It's going to be super hard. Exactly. I mean, the fact that rent, you know, when you, when you keep up with inflation and income, and like the stagnation of income and the rise of inflation, I mean, compared to the 60s and 70s, when there was this kind of militance and so many fights were waged and rights were won, rent is suffocating. It's strangulating yeah. uh, its people. I mean, the fact that no state exists across the U.S. where you can afford a two-bedroom apartment, which is, you know, if, you ha- if you're talking about a family, um, two people with a child – that's a two-bedroom apartment, and no one making minimum wage can afford that. So you do have to have both both um, people working in the household. And I think that just accelerates this kind of dystopian stage that we're in and also hinders political action. You know, no one talks about how much that's actually stifling the ability to be active and to organize because you're just completely – um, a wage slave. I mean, twenty four seven. You you can't even ha- you don't even have the capacity to figure out how you can be a part of change. You know, this may seem a little bit out there, but it is it is interesting to even kind of take like a 
bird's eye view on this and look at some of these studies that talks about how many more billions of people would even be on the planet if there was no abortion in just the last 50 years. According to some studies, three billion more people. So, you know, the more people in the workforce, the better for the uh, people at the top, you know, maximizing that infinite growth perspective, having more and more people <laughs> working all the time and increasing the capacity of, you know, repression, as you, you talked about, and just inequality widening and widening. I guess let's get into just your thesis. I mean, neo-feudalism, because all of these things uh, are kind of reflective of this era, Jody, and it is a unique era. And for people who consider themselves socialists or Marxists, who've studied, you know, Marx and Engels, they think of socialism as the next stage of evolution after capitalism. That's what we take away from this literature. You know, what comes after capitalism? Even the idea that we're grappling with today, that capitalism inevitably destroys itself, that it is destroying itself. It is, you know, we are digging our own graves. Um, but for those people and for those who are not familiar with this concept, explain this different view that you have. Okay, so um, you're 100%, I really appreciated when you were saying towards the end how capitalism inevitably destroys itself. Um, that is something that we um, we recognize um, as, as, as just a kind of fundamental aspect of this system, right? It wrecks lives, it wrecks entire economic sectors, it wrecks w- ways of life. Um, it you know hurts it hurts workers it wrecks the environment and you know in the Marxist tradition the understanding has been that capitalism at the same time as it destroys itself it also creates the conditions for something new it creates the the centralization the um, the concentration of means of production the centralization of production um, that can make something better that can make socialism possible but it's never guaranteed right? we know like marx and also you know Others in the Marxist tradition, like Lenin, for example, and Rosa Luxemburg, uh, Mao, everybody recognizes that you have to have struggle, too, right? A central tenet of the socialist tradition is class struggle and political struggle and the struggles of oppressed national minorities. History isn't just given to us. We make it. And as Marx said, under conditions that we don't choose, and this means our struggles can can be won and they can be lost. So capitalist develop, economic development creates the conditions that can make socialism possible. But if socialism is possible, it's because we fight for it and win that fight. Right? We can't um, ignore the element of political struggle. So my um, thinking that I'm you know I'm using this category of neo-feudalism to express is that what happens in periods when we're losing the struggle or when we've lost the struggle, you know, for over 40 years. So the work that we are used to thinking about um, neoliberalism as a period of working class defeat. And, um, you know, that's labor union participation is way low. Um, Factories have closed down. 
Um, and the, we don't, we've not been in a really strong place in the class struggle for, I mean, in the working class struggle, you know, at the standpoint of production for a really long time. There have been victories in other areas, but the class, in the class struggle, um, labor has not been on, um, winning for a while now. So what happens when capitalism is able to you know, run roughshod over most of us when capitalism is um, gets rid of all the regulations, when the political system that supports the capitalist class blocks all kinds of progressive social change. Um, my um, hypothesis is that what we see is something like neo-feudalism, a situation where more and more of us encounter lives where we're sort of like immiserated serfs or proletarianized serfs under conditions where they're lords um, around us who trap us in you know complicated technological and legal schemes where we're always have our you know we earn money but that's immediately expropriated from us with weird sorts of fines and rents um, where capital is um, where, where accumulation happens less through commodity production, but through taking money, like taking things from people, whether or not that's through these fees and fines um, or, or other things that I'm sure we'll get into. So the basic idea is that um, you know, socialism is a stage that can follow from capitalism. But if we are not winning the struggle worse things can follow from, you know, and, and that capitalism can lead to even worse forms. And neo-feudalism is a name for these tendencies towards something worse. Yeah, you know, Jody, when you mentioned that, you know, how you, you earn a wage, but it's immediately somehow taken. Like, I think the latest study on this uh, in the current uh, uh, state of inflation we're in is that 64% of American workers live paycheck to paycheck. And when you really think about that, you know, what does that mean? It means you have to, you're going to work, usually working like more than one job to, to be able to make ends meet, but you're doing all this work, but then everything that you collect in your paycheck immediately just goes back to capitalists, like where you just are literally left with nothing. It is kind of like really weird when you really think about what that, that means, that that many millions of people are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, totally. And I think that fits with um, Abby's earlier point about, you know, under these conditions, I mean, how are people able to engage in a lot of political activity and political organizing and demonstrating and protest? It's like you're working two or three jobs and you can't afford to like you can't afford to get injured. You can't afford to get arrested. You can't afford child care for even more um, hours of the day. You can't afford, you know, afford to get fired. So these conditions are very extreme and they make, um, you know, they make political work, um, particularly for those of us who want to see a, um, a change in the socialist direction. They make it even harder than it's been. You break this concept down into a few categories that I want to go deeper into. And just to give a heads up to our listeners, the terms are very academic and a little difficult to understand, but the explanations that you give to them are not and they actually just make perfect sense once you describe what these mean. Um, Jody and I want to get into each and every one because they're so, so incredibly important to wrap your mind around. The first characteristic of this neo-feudal state is, is parcelated sovereignty. Um, what 
what, is, what the hell does this mean? <laughs> no, I mean, how do, I guess, how is this put into practice in this country and abroad, especially when we're talking yeah. about like a global empire, especially the countries being subjugated by the empire? Like, for example, Mike and I went to Ecuador. Um, there is a huge arbitration going on with Chevron oh. where they have been fought. I mean, they've been fighting for God, I don't know how many years to try to get reparations for the toxification, you know, the, the dumping, deliberate dumping of all of the oil in the Amazon rainforest. And they actually did win. But then Chevron came in and essentially yeah. nullified this ruling because of how much power they have. Yeah, that's such a good example. Okay, so I'm going to um, try to kind of break this up because it's it is sort of an academic term, and it comes from um, the Marxist theorist uh, Ellen Mikesons Wood and Perry Anderson as they're describing what made. Um, feudalism in Europe during the Middle Ages, what were its characteristics? And um, and that's it's a, one of the characteristics of, of this European feudalism that I think we see today. And that is this parcelated or fragmented sovereignty. So what what this fragmented, like, so people can just think visually, just think, oh, lots of little lords in their castles warring with one another, even as they might be little lords within a larger empire, and the empire might make them sort of send soldiers to do X or Y. So the first way to just think about it is is these um, little lords that have economic and political authority over the people in their jurisdiction. So a lord can tell a serf, um, okay, you have to give me 30% of your um, crop every year. And by the way, um, I decide what 30% is. And if this is a good part of crop and any time that you've committed a crime, I decide whether or not you're innocent or guilty. So, so the political and the economic blur together. What we see now, and exactly in the um, example that you were talking about from um from Ecuador is a blurring of states and corporations. And this um, plays out really clearly in arbitration law. So when there's a dispute, are the decisions made to resolve the dispute? Are they made in accordance with state law in public courts, like in accordance with the laws of Ecuador? Or are the decisions around a dispute made via arbitration, which is a legal um, process that is established by parties to a contract and almost always to the advantage of the most powerful participant in a contract. Submission to arbitration um, rather than actual law undermines public law and it establishes zones where contracts trump law. So you mentioned the um, proceedings in Ecuador where there, you know, the people can make a democratic decision um, that are going that wants to subject industries to um, environmental and labor regulations, that wants to um, make hold industries accountable for um, devastation that they've created, for violations of the law. And what happens is that the corporation says no 
your country is party to these various trade agreements that mean that we get to take this to an arbitration court and decide there, right? So, so we, the company that's taking the wealth of your people um, in the, what's really a neo-colonial arrangement, we will also um, subject you to this arbitration um, proceeding. Like if you, if you try to hold, uh, make us accountable to your law, we sue you and bring you to arbitration and nine times out of 10, the corporation wins. So this is a direct undermining of that country's sovereignty and legal and and corporate or political and economic power blur together. Like when we see this really strongly on the corporate side, because the corporation can force the country into arbitration. I'll add that over the last decade, there's also been a proliferation of new arbitration courts in Africa to try to subject um, extractivist I mean, to, that extractivist companies want because they want to avoid state law. And it's also the case in, um, for U.S. workers now. This is, it's actually quite shocking. Over 60% of U.S. workers, primarily those in industries where they're pay, or occupations that where they're paid less than $13 an hour, they don't have any right to take their employee to court, they sign away that right and agree to arbitration. So they lose, they have no rights to unionize because they agree in the arbitration. This has been held up by, you know, the unelected, life-appointed, you know, lords on the Supreme Court. Um, they, you know, employees have to um, resort to arbitration with their employer under terms set by the employers rather than actually um, go to a court. So this rise in arbitration is part of this parcelization of sovereignty where um, economic and political blurs together and the whole sphere of like that we thought of in terms of political rights just basically vanishes. And this is like a relatively new order of things it's the in with respect to u.s labor the supreme court laws have been i think it was 2013 and 2014 um i don't have the the names of the um decisions right at the top of my head um but it's changed very quickly as more and more companies realized oh we can um you know require our employees to subject um, to pursue arbitration and to give up, you know, the rights to go to, um, you know, the a right to sue. They you forfeit a right to sue. We're also pretty familiar with this on um, as lots of we, a lot of consumer agreements have this, and some of sometimes we hear this with um, with Silicon Valley people and non compete clause non compete clauses. But the arbitration um, system has now spread throughout. American labor law in ways that are really horrifying. Would the IMF and World Bank um, like economic subjugation through these loans um, with all these preconditions on these loans across developing countries, would that fold into this larger theory or is it only? Oh, yeah. Threat? No, yeah. You're, you're totally right. I'm sorry. I'm very excited. Um, it's 100 <laughs> percent. right? Like the, the way that the IMF um, puts more fines onto countries that are having a hard time paying their already um, extortionate debts is a typical neo-feudal um, kind of maneuver. I mean, first of all, you just think practically speaking, 
Um, why in the world, if you if a country can't pay its debt to give it more fines, seems really counterproductive. But if the goal is to just continue to subjugate them, to continue to uh, just extract every little bit of, of of everything from them until they die, then yeah, that's what the fines do. It's a ter- It's it's like basic um, coercive power rather than strictly speaking um an economic model it's take uh, the phrase i really like is taking not making right if they wanted to if they wanted the co- country to do well they would invest a lot in it so that the com- the country could repay and they would make things and you know increase forms of production but instead they um they they take and take and take and this taking not making is a key um example of like a neo feudal dynamic Right. No, it's such a good point. And these are like so-called allied countries with the United States and its junior collaborators. And then you have the so-called adversaries that are just being heavily sanctioned, which is also this kind of looming threat, you know, cutting off entire national jurisdictions. The Treasury Department in the wake of 9-11 was granted this unprecedented and essentially unregulated power to just cut countries off at the knees, decimate entire economies and subjugate their people with like basically no political accountability. So you have, you know, corporate media barely mentioning sanctions as an effect of like Venezuela's economic freefall or, you know, Cuba's food shortages. It's it's quite fascinating the way that that's been able to manipulate global economics um, in, in a way, I guess, as part of this neo-feudalism, because it's just the power has been consolidated and expanded to such an extreme degree. Yeah, I also I think um, it fits in a lot of ways with if we just want to keep looking at the pattern, um, the patterns of um, de-development. You know, Walter Rodney talked about how Europe um, de-developed Africa. Um, this these sanctions have are political and economic at the same time, right? They seek to politically coerce and punish. And they seek to economically devastate. So the the key here that that and that lets us that I and, and it's why I think neo feudalism helps provide a way of of mentally arranging this stuff is seeing the combination of an economic and a political measure. I mean, why would anyone think it it could make sense within international law for a country to handle its disagreement? by starving the people of another country to death, by denying the people of another country much needed medicines, by denying them fuel. But with this combination or this blurring of the economic and the political, that's what we see, right? We see these measures and that the U.S. constantly is taking and doing horribly with respect to, um, in in particular, um, Venezuela and, um, and Cuba, but you know now more and more um, with respect to Russia, um, this is this. Co- but it's this combination of the economic and the political that's really striking, and I think is something um, that we can see as, as recognizably something new. It's not just regular um, diplomacy or, or or regular like political struggle um, between countries. Right. I think the de-development is a really key phrase there because it's, again, like the, the neo-feudal subjugation, keeping these countries under your thumb. Um, and just as a side note, sanctions have increased 1,000 percent 
over the last 20 years, um, you know, at the same time, counterterrorism is also on the rise. Uh, let's move on to hinterlandization. This is another <laughs> it's another uh, yeah. tough one. But um, but of course, it can be explained really well, especially describing the way cities are mapped out today in terms of the accumulation of capital and labor. I guess explain this concept and what what it does to essentially destroy the concept of city spaces and the surrounding communities. Okay, so um, I first I want to um, give a plug. I get the term um, hinterlandization from Phil Neal's book um, Hinterlands, which is really interesting in describing the kind of landscapes of of late capitalism and our capitalism in an imperialist era where where the capitalist system is essentially destroying itself and it destroys communities it destroys the land and it leaves a, a devastation all around us so i used in this term hinterlandization as um, to designate how capitalism produces um a, a a bifurcated landscape of prosperity and success for the few and the rich, and then a desolated, um, terrible landscape for those who are exploited, oppressed, and left behind. So you have really lively you know, cities with beautiful areas and cute cafes and shops with guards and expensive apartments also with guards and walls and these are surrounded by economically depressed and often environmentally poisoned and polluted areas so across the u.s and many other countries as well um, we see that capital has our capitalism has basically eaten up and spit out entire communities where there were once thriving small towns, they're now abandoned strip malls, pawn shops, usurious payday lenders, and also giant warehouses and distribution centers, call centers, prisons. Um, there may be um, kind of half-started housing developments that were then abandoned before much was built. We also see shut down schools, closed hospitals. So if folks just think about the outskirts of most um, communities, this is what we see. And, um, and so one of the ways this is described um, is as a division between alpha cities and kind of left cities that are left behind or loser cities. And it also happens within cities, right? Wealth um, doesn't just concentrate. Wealth itself produces extremes so that there are massive gaps, gaps between the rich and the poor. So um, we have a situation where the richer the city is, the larger the population of homeless people, which, I mean, if we just think about it, that should be absurd, right? If the city is all that rich, shouldn't everyone share in the prosperity? But in fact, it's actually common and it's kind of taken for granted as a feature of life in New York and LA, Seattle, Washington, DC, and so on. So this is what I mean by hinterlandization, this division between 
rich, prosperous areas, and then the eviscerated, ecologically and economically devastated areas um, within and around them. And we should, and and you mentioned at the uh, beginning of our conversation, I think the um, prevalence of diseases of despair. That's one of the characteristics of life in the hinterlands is this um, low, low, um, decreasing life expectancy rate, um, problems with um, opioid abuse, with various forms of health, um, with health issues caused by um, inadequate nutrition and um, abuse of drugs and the lack of mental health um, and medical facilities, right? That's all part of this general, we get uh, another expression of this would be a crisis of social reproduction as life becomes harder and harder for the people in the hinterlands. Yeah, I'm thinking right now of, you know, these are the frontline communities, the sacrifice zones. My yeah. guy went to Houston and it was, I mean, completely devastated and not only um, devastated, but also like these chemical companies just have free reign to just pollute at will, uh, just granted just unprecedented like rights you know meanwhile people there's playgrounds right next to these but there's no actual social services or thinking of somewhere like detroit which is just blighted homes for you know miles and miles and miles with no nothing at all and giant empty warehouses where there used to be production there Um, but i guess you know talk a little bit more about about how this is new like when when this really happened um, to become the extreme that it is today, because I feel like it might be a hard concept of thinking that this is something novel when we look at how, you know, capitalism has always produced these kind of extreme disparities, even in city centers. I mean, there I don't know how new, I, obviously, we're in the epidemic of the homelessness crisis here and especially Hollywood. It's just quite severe and extreme. But I feel like that's always been a feature. Um, that's a good point. So I'm going to have to um, go a little bit in the weeds now in my um, this general kind of theoretical idea of neo-feudalism. And the, my hypothesis or my, my wager is that capitalism is turning itself into something that is not recognizably capitalist anymore. So capitalism's own processes are destroying capitalism. And it's destroying capitalism not in the way that, you know, socialist revolutionaries for centuries have wanted, but destroying capitalism in ways that are are creating a situation that's something um, even worse than capitalist, right? That's part of this de-development. So if we we think about capitalism as following specific laws of motion – This means that capitalism has dynamics that are competitive, that are that and that this competition leads capitalists to reinvest what they reinvest their profits back into production so that they continue to expand and produce. And competition leads capitalists to try to improve things, to become more efficient and better. What we've seen over the last uh, 20, 30 years, is capitalists not reinvesting in production. Instead, what they do is kind of hoard the wealth or eat the proceeds, meaning they have stock buybacks and massive executive salaries. They don't invest back in production. They they um, hoard their capital. Also, we see more and more um 
you know, capitalist firms not engaging in um, real um, improvement, but in destruction, right? In market destruction for, and I'm thinking here of things like um, Uber and um, particularly Uber. Uber is like the best example because it destroys um, transportation, sort of um, urbanly regulated transportation markets um, in order to, make sure that they and maybe, you know, Lyft is the only other one are the ones who can um, determine, um, you know, how much rides cost, who can ride where and uh, and take their cut of all of this, even though they don't own any cars for themselves. Right. They don't they don't invest in capital. They don't hire um, drivers. Instead, they provide these apps that turn that where people take people's own um, um Items, people's own the things that they own, like their cars, become tools for oppressing them. Like that's completely strange. Like that's actually very much like a surf. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and Airbnb is totally. So it's like my apartment now becomes not really my apartment, but only the way that I make money for somebody else. So, um, so anyway, this so this is part of this general argument regarding capital, a tendency within capitalism. So you're 100% right to say that there are aspects of hinterlandization that have been part of capitalism because capitalism has always relied on kinds of de-development in some areas as it's developed in others. And now we see this de-development maybe coming home more, right? Coming back into the um, sort of imperial center um, as as capitalism essentially eats itself alive and destroys us all along with it. Yeah, I think that's this is so important. I think a term you mentioned before that really meant a lot to me, I guess, it's, it's a way that helps you mentally organize what's around us. I think most people, especially people listening, are conscious of the fact that like everything is horrible all around us. Like you can't go <laughs> yeah. to an American city without seeing this deep despair, division, everything. Um, you know, I lived... Uh, most of my time in Los Angeles and downtown Los Angeles, Abby and I uh, lived in downtown Los Angeles together, arguably one of like the worst downtowns in the United States in the world. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of like how poorly maintained and how big the disparities are. But you know, like there's this one experience that sticks in my head where uh, this is like shortly before we started empire files in 2015, but I was working, I had to catch an early, like 5am bus to a grocery store I was working at. Um, and there's this brand new high rise condo building of which there are a lot of now in downtown LA. Uh, like the condos in these buildings go for like $1.5 million for like a one or two bedroom condo. The buildings are mostly empty because like these real estate developers, like they're mainly building them for like 10 or 20 years down the line, or because most of the people that buy these expensive condos, like don't live in them for most of the year and then so i'd always be at the bus stop like in the shadows of these giant buildings and there's this old elderly woman who is always asleep on the bench at this bus stop that i was wait at waiting at and then one morning she was just dead and so like this this scene of this like you know the ambulance and all this stuff like in this situation of waiting for the bus to go to the shitty job with this like all these condos around it was just like a very striking thing and i think the way most people you know people who are somewhat politically politically conscious are like, well, this is capitalism. This is late stage capitalism. And that's the way you that's the way you understand it. But understanding this concept of like hinterlandization, it, it gives you a better way to organize it in your mind without just saying, oh, this is just capitalism. This is what capitalism is like. It is something different now. And there are other ways that we can understand it conceptually. 
Yeah, I, I hope that that's the goal, right? I, I mean, the, you, you're capture and and my hope is by with these concepts of you know parcelated sovereignty and hinterlandization we we've got to link them and that's what this neo-feudalism does is to try to let us see how these different aspects that are part of capitalism's own self-destruction are all connected with each other i'm going to give an, an we've been talking some about um sort of the horrors of Uber and Airbnb, right? They're kind of sector destroying. They destroy any market they enter into. Um, it's also been, and I'm just reading this in the last day or two, um, this has also been happening um, in the housing market around um, single family rentals. I guess they call SFRs. There's been five corporations that have been buying up single family homes and they buy them not to sell them to people, but to sell them to other corporations um, as investment vehicles. And these other corporations will maybe rent them, but the people who are renting them now become essentially dependent on these on really specific apps that um, and the apps do things like determine. Um, special fees that they have to pay. They're supposedly a kind of, of um, rent to own. But what that is meaning in practice is that there's no kind of superintendent watching the building and responsible for repairs. The person renting is responsible for the own repairs. They're very easily stuck with additional fees and fines. And they're also much more quickly evicted. So this whole, th- there was recently a, um, a congressional inquiry into this, these corporations taking over the single family rental market. Um, they bought like in, in, um, two, in 2021, 40% of the housing in the Atlanta area went into, was bought up by these, um, companies buying oh this family rentals. Yeah. Oh, this is crazy. It's really awful. Um, so like people get a bit and people who were foreclosed on or evicted now, try to get back in the market, but they can't afford a house. So they rent to own from one of these horrible companies who actually has no intention of, you know, the people ever actually being able to buy the house back because they keep increasing the rent and they really easily evict and foreclose on people. They, they are constantly, um, the, the companies apparently use a model, a business model called iBuying. And it's it's part of the way that they use these b- different algorithms that tell the company which big bunches of houses to buy or which house to buy where, um, because then they will be able to you know engage in this kind of horrible um, faux kind of rent to own business. And no one will be surprised to hear that um, this happens primarily in areas with large numbers of black families and in um, area areas and zip codes with large numbers of single female heads of households. Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any more yeah. dystopian than that. This complete lack of accountability or even direct, you know, relationship with another human being. It's all just so That's siloed right. off and you're so alienated from even what's happening. And it really is just, it, you've described it as like a hyper modern form of feudalism because of the advent of technology um advancing just this kind of bizarre dystopian hellscape i mean 
<laughs> I mean, and, and also just like going back to something that you said really quickly too, and I want to get into the lords and peasants, but it's it's so counterintuitive. Like it's so like you said that you know you would think that in order for capitalists to understand that they need to continue to advance capitalism, they would need to like somehow reinvest. Like they would need to somehow right. give us a modicum of stability or humanity. But no, it's all stripped down. It's all hoarded. And it, it, it's, it is just fascinating, like the counterintuitive nature of this stage of capitalism that, that we're in. Yeah, the um, um, his economic historian, Robert Brenner, has been talking about this. Um, maybe we might say like late stage neoliberalism or neo-feudalism. And he also uses the term neo-feudalism. He's been talking about the um, politically driven upward redistribution of wealth. So, you know, um, political um, officials, state policies are all motivated around redistributing wealth upward. Um, it's, it's, I think about this when I'm not in my, you know, not wearing an academic hat. I just think about this is the climate is changing um, things are bad and the rich are grabbing everything they can as fast as they can. And they're leaving the rest of us to fight it out. And that's why the Supreme Court just said, OK, here's more guns for everybody. It's dangerous out there. You guys are going to have to fight it out for yourselves. And uh, and you'll also be forced to have more kids so that you'll have you know more people to wage your horrible um, wars in this hellscape. But I I, um, I really feel like it's um, because. It's not been the case for, you know, and liberalism is a response to this. It's not been the case that production has been a primary way to make profit for a long time now, maybe 30 years. The very rich have, have sought other ways and they've sought intellectual property. That's a way they can get rents, um, various kinds of strange financial strategies, and then all of this widespread taking. And that's what we're that's the that's what we're the economic political formation we encounter now. And would you say that, you know, is this something that where we are today, is this something that like the ruling class has consciously created or planned like, OK, we can do this to become stronger as a class and reap bigger profits and all this? Or is this more akin to like the system evolving in the way like biological organisms evolve, like the way evolution happens in biology is there is some dramatic change in the landscape or environment and new niches are opened up and whatever can exploit that niche or find a, a success in that niche becomes dominant. And, and this, this tree opens up of, of evolution for them. And so all these, this moment we're in that you're describing, is this something that is, is conscious by the ruling class or is just kind of this, just this system growing in its own weird, monstrous way? Um, I, I, I think we should think it's probably both, right? Are there elements of both? It's not one or the other. Um, I'll use an example like um, the, you know, this um, awful company we work um, and we work knew that it had to, grow really, really fast and just keep bringing in more and more um, venture capital if it was going to wipe out all of the you know, smaller um, you know, real estate or landlord ventures in their office space. And they called this strategy blitz scaling. And this is used by other companies and it's known like business people talk about it and Silicon Valley people talk about it. So it's not just it, one company might um, 
you know, find it or, and it wasn't, we work, we weren't, didn't invent it, that we work was copying Uber. Uber thought it was sort of copying things that Amazon had done that Amazon turned a profit in Uber and uh, we work haven't, but, um, but blitz scaling was a, a strategy that people talked about. So it's hard to say whether or not it's, um, you know, it emerged um, organically or spontaneously um, like a, a um, or if it was a basic strategy. I think um, the rich using laws to protect themselves um, you know, has a long and ignoble history. So that seems like um, the kind of activities that corporate lawyers um, engage in all the time. And and that and so that part seems to me like that it's been producing this neo neo feudal healthscape. Um, Seems like it's a kind of or, or more organic um, development, but again, they share the information with each other, and so some people do it. Folks see that they're um, that that's a winning strategy, and then they copy it as well. I like arbitration, talk- same way. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about automation really quickly because this, you know, we're taking this to a new level now, where automation should be seen as something that's good. I mean, you know, no one's opposed to having automation help free up labor so people can pursue hobbies and other activities but that's not what's happening it's it's used to further subjugate and and basically alienate people from the workforce leaving no ability to actually make money with all of these lost jobs so you're talking right. about you know postmates uber things like this this is a very fascinating um evolution of what has already been kind of this dystopian aspect of this neo-feudal state. But here in Los Angeles, we're starting to see automated delivery robots driving down the sidewalk replacing postmate no it gets worse Jody. like they don't make enough money the post no yeah no it, it gets worse <laughs> replacing postmate delivery drivers and like it's fucking bizarre it's like i can't even imagine being like in a wheelchair like already the scooters are everywhere littering all these sidewalks but then you have the robots delivery drivers picking up food from the restaurant bringing it to your door okay come to find out jody they are not even driven by ai they're people in poor countries with virtual headsets on, driving these robots through the streets of Hollywood, delivering sushi to people who don't oh. want to get into their cars to get it themselves. I mean, wow. Oh, I mean, I have no idea. I'm like, I'm like, uh, just like, it's always worse than I think, right? I mean, I've described this like hellscape, and then you can find something even worse that, oh my God, I just had no idea. It's like oh, delivery driver delivery drivers are already getting completely screwed. It's right, a horrible right. job for them, but they're like, you know what? We're not paying them little <laughs> enough. If we can get someone robotically to drive it in India where we could pay them like one twelfth of what we're paying the delivery drivers, it's it's nuts. It's incredible. It's incredible. I mean yeah, I mean what do you even say about that? I think it yeah, I think it just further yeah, shocks like- the, the system. <laughs> I think it lets us know. I mean, one thing is that you, I'm just repeating what you said just a minute ago because it, it, it's important. I mean, automation should be used to make our lives better, right? There's like, it would, it's really good not to, I don't know, it's like an elevator is good if you live in a high building. You don't want to walk up 10 flights of stairs. That seems like a pretty good thing. I, um, I like being able to look up things quickly. On Google, this shouldn't all be, you know, technology shouldn't be terrible for us. But when it's um, within a 
context of private property and a context of the um, the very rich designing this and using it to make more money when they're using um, technologies to find more ways to take from us and surveil us. Yeah, this is what we resulted. It doesn't have to be this way, right? We could have... Um, I don't know, like people's technology, which is what folks initially had hoped would be, um, you know, even though the Internet, as we know, was designed as a DARPA project, um, there was still a lot of hope in um, in networks and, and forms of, of you know, people having the means of, you know, of computers in their own hands and able to have laptops. And all this was supposed to be um, usher in the kind of, of much cooler, more democratic world, but it didn't. You know, it it and one of the major reasons, not the only reason, but one of the major reasons for that is because of the way it um, has been trapped in capitalist corporate relations. Yeah, it seems like sci-fi. I mean, I always talk about this, but I, I like talking about it. Um, that sci-fi back in the sixties and seventies and stuff had a much more utopianist, uh, visionary feel, where people were, you know, assuming that all of this technology and the advent of all these inventions would, co- you know, we could, and we can obviously build something that is incredible and for the benefit of humanity. But it seems like everyone. Um, has ceded to the notion that we are just going to be in a post-apocalyptic world and that like it's just extremely inundated with dystopian visions, which I guess makes sense based on what we're talking about. But it is just kind of sad. It's like even the creativity of, yeah. of uh, the visionary aspect of what we could build is like it's almost like destroyed itself as well. <laughs> Let's get into the lords and peasants because I think okay. this is an obvious one, but but it but it really manifests itself when you talk about like specific um, entities like Silicon Valley tech overlords who yeah. contribute to the hyper modern form of feudalism. I mean, going back to someone like Peter Thiel, a fascinating comment that you mention in one of your articles, um, Peter Thiel, I think he's one of the founding members of PayPal. I mean, he's basically a backer yeah. of a lot of uh, media tech startups today. But back in 2012, he was even he he was pretty open about this, and I want you to decipher this this um, quote right here. He said, no founder or CEO has absolute power. It's more like the archaic feudal structure. People vest the top person with all sorts of power and ability and then blame them if and when things go wrong. So it's a super weird remark. Um, I want to point out two things that I think about that. First, I mean... It's I, I think it's delusional on his part to think that anyone thinks that a CEO has or should have absolute power. So that's a super weird place to begin. Like if like normally people like it used to be the case, even up through kind I think up through the late 60s that folks recognized that and CEOs recognize this, that corporations um, had a kind of public trust. They had obligations to their employees and obligations to their communities, obligations to their shareholders. Um, they were in no ways um, simply um, individual instruments for the aggrandizement and wealth accumulation of a single person. So I think it's a very weird place for um, Peter Thiel to begin, but it gives us a little bit of insight into his own um, sort of you know, megalomaniacal delusions that he would think that he would start there. I think second, we should contrast this idea um, 
you know, that, that it's like an archaic feudal structure with the model that was kind of publicly promoted, the model of corporations, particularly like um, what it would be like to work at Amazon or Google or Facebook or any cool Silicon Valley um, company. The model was supposed to be like um, open floor plans and a really cool laid back big campus, a fun workplace with ping pong tables and really good food and maybe a gym and massages and people like employees feedback was going to be valued and there'd be spaces and opportunities for creativity. And the model Tails pointing to like as as if that kind of fantasy world of the Apple campus um, was ever like it's like totally erased from Teal's model. And Teal points as if it's the most natural thing in the world into this idea that there's a you know essentially a, a archaic feudal structure, which means a lord with vassals and serfs, and that a company is like that. So the lord might be beholden to higher law um, lords um, who might also then be beholden to ones above them. But what matters is who pledges fealty to whom and what privileges come with with fealty. And what matters is how servile various employees have to be in order to be recognized or knighted by the Lord. I mean, it's, it's utterly chilling. And I think it also lets us know that there is a neo-feudal imaginary that's floating around. Um, it's in the air. Like, and, and you see this really strongly in, in tech writing for like the last 15, maybe even 20 years. Um, tech writers have worried about um, or talked about, oh, we've got the lords and serfs of the Internet, you know, the lords who own the platforms and the rest of us. Anytime we use them, the lords take a cut. Um, there's some um, uh, internet security writers who talk about the way that um, that we all essentially end up having to um, we, we rely on like knights to defend us. Like we rely, we, we enter on a kind of vassalage um, of security. Like, oh no, if we don't have this kind of special security, our identity will be stolen. If we don't have this kind of security, um, you know, all of this, um, you know, all of, we, we risk losing our passwords and they'll be stolen and our bank accounts will be hacked and all of this. It's like we're perpetu- we're in a zone where we can't protect ourselves and where laws can't protect us. So instead we have these different little security companies or secure zones that are supposed to protect us. But, but then this also means like our own, you know, our own phones, our own laptops aren't really ours, Like we can't really do what we want with them because we need all these special security things to protect us from, you know, the lurking dangers out there. So anyway, I went, I kind of went off track, but the basic thought is that the imaginary is not one that's of democratic participation. It's not one of creative workers. It's not one of equal, of equality of any sort. It's one of hierarchy, lords, vassals, fealty, and um, servility. Exactly. And it's extractivist. I mean, all of our data, like I remember Cambridge Analytica boasting that they have 5,000 data points on every American voter. That's a very insidious, granular level of, of atomization there of our psychology, mining our psychology, selling it to advertisers, selling it to these corporations. 
And just the monopolization of, of information is a unique feature of where we're at, uh, especially when you see the unprecedented power being granted to tech overlords being able to not only censor uh, without the government mandate even telling them to do so. So it's kind of censorship by proxy, which, you know, basically just embeds yeah. the notion that we still have somehow freedom to choose and freedom of speech and all that. Um, but also just the manipulation, you know, I mean, the curation of our reality when so many people are getting their information from the Internet. It's incredibly insidious. Yeah, I love your um, term uh, censorship by proxy. I think that's really crucial. And it points us again to this merging of the political and economic when private corporations determine what we can see. Like a lot of liberals have, were incensed about the you know, horrible things that Trump said. And, and we should be incensed by the horrible things Trump said and continues to say. But that doesn't mean that it makes sense for private companies like Twitter and Facebook to determine wh what is said, who says it, who's allowed to speak, to censor all of our interactions. I mean, usually we think of that kind of censorship as the responsibility of elected governments, not of private corporations. But because people are so involved and in like so embedded now, involved, um, absorbed in these kinds of social media out, um, outlets, we end up we end up subjecting ourselves to not just the economic jurisdiction of the companies, but to their political control as they determine what we can see. Like censorship should not be what a company does. Exactly. Everyone, hold on. That's on the call queue. We are going to get to you in just a second, but we want to wrap up the last defining stage of this neo-feudal era. And that perfectly segues from this kind of surveillance capitalism into catastrophism. Uh, this is something particularly hard hitting to me because, you know, we have all of this access. We have the world's information at our fingertips, access to information 24-7. It's being beamed into all of our devices that we go from one device to the next. It's so overwhelming already to process the horrifying news on a global spectrum. Um, it's impossible to know where to direct our little time and energy that we have, especially given the apocalyptic reality of where we're headed with climate change and the utter inaction of the ruling class to do absolutely anything to mitigate it. So I want to talk about how it manifests and reinforces itself, especially exacerbated by surveillance capitalism, where you have millions of workers working under this model of low-level anxiety, fear, and depression of, let's say, an Amazon warehouse where you yeah. are being, you know, you're being basically technologically, like, monitored at every second of the day. All these delivery drivers, you could get fired if you're, you know, you go to the bathroom for too long. That's why you have, like, the epidemic of people, like, peeing in bottles and not being able to go to the bathroom. I mean, it just, it is so insane, this high-stress work environment um, that correlates with, of course, these diseases of despair. And it brings me back to that theory of alienation. I feel like it's alienation on steroids. Yeah, um, 100%. I mean, this, um, so I, um, just as you've described, this catastrophism refers to a general affect or sensibility or the kind of vibe that we live and in, in 
um, these neo-feudalizing conditions. And you know, it's conditions of climate change. It's conditions of constant anxiety. It's condition uh, conditions of of unavoidable um, surveillance down to our our basic bodily needs. Now we're going to see, I'm sure, with um, the overthrow um, of Roe v. Wade, it's going to be women um, having every aspect of their menstrual cycles and their OBGYN visits um, also um, you know, subjected to more and more surveillance. But this um, this catastrophism makes sense. It makes, makes sense that people are going to feel anxious, even exhausted, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of despair, a sense that every, like it's it, the, basically the sense that it's like the end of the world. Like, um, that makes sense. But it's also something that we need to be able, I think, critically and politically to look at, even as it makes sense, it's a choice to whether or not to give into it completely or to try to resist it and find hope and try to fight against it and to put hope and organizing in the right places. So the catastrophism is the vibe we live in um, and we need to recognize it as that vibe. And we ne- need to recognize that it makes sense for people, particularly people who for generations have lived in kind of the ongoing catastrophe and despair of, you know, of racist and sexist and, and homophobic evisceration. Um, so it makes sense to feel like, you know, that there's a sense of catastrophe and hopelessness. But we also, um, I, I think, should not um, just say, OK, well, that's it. There's nothing to be done. There's always something to be done. And let's let's bring it to what can be done. I mean, when there have been successful revolutions against feudalism or capitalism, let's say in China and Russia and Cuba and beyond, it was a different time. These systems were at such a lower stage of development and technology than we're in today. Um, you know, this is this global system now, not only militarized, but technologically advanced. Everything's interconnected. Clearly, when revolutions were sweeping the capitalist and colonial world, there was this moment when revolution seemed very even here. I mean, very, very possible, very likely but now it does seem all-encompassing and I guess just exacerbates that catastrophism. After what we've discussed today, how does that change the potential for revolution? Does this make you optimistic? Optimistic? <laughs> Excuse me about where this can go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> Jody. So, no. So okay. Here, here. It, what it makes, what I think it should make all of us recognize is more than ever before, the political system that's in place is holding this neo-feudal health Jody? in place. Oh, sorry. Yeah? We lost you for a second. We lost you for a second. Oh, sorry. Okay. Did, um, did you hear? Um, I heard you say holding again? this neo-feudal hellscape in place. We got yeah. you. So that's what the way that the current what the current political system is doing. Um, the optimism then comes in recognizing like, oh, we really can't have any hope in the current system. Like we can recognize full well exactly what its function is. So maybe that's not a lot, but it's a tiny bit. And it also fits back with the problem of the hope from the very beginning of the conversation was hoping that somehow the political system was going to be functional, even knowing full well that it wasn't. I also think that 
you know, it, it's it sort of has been the long story of of Euro communists and a particular kind of um, socialist or social democrat or democratic socialist that revolution needs to be that socialist revolution follows bourgeois revolution that um it's the next phase it has to be done through some kind of of parliamentary um mechanisms that it won't be like the uh russian revolution that it's got to be um that it's more um long term almost more like reform than revolution and yet when we look at china and russia um their revolutions were actually not strictly speaking you know anti-capitalist bourgeois revolutions the capitalism wasn't super developed there they were also revolutions against feudalism and against landlordism so one of the things that's wild is that the the kind of um de-development that we're experiencing takes us into a place that looks a lot more like mid 20th century China and early 20th century Russia. So that's kind of, it's like, oh, it's not just that we're this successful democratic parliamentary capitalist country. No, right. It's a neo-feudal hellscape. So it looks a lot more devastating in ways that those countries did. So maybe that's another place of hope. And then the other, the other final place of hope is like, well, they're always the struggles of the people. And no matter what happens, um, people are fighting back. And whenever we look at those struggles, we can take again, we can join them, support them and um, try to further them. And that's a, you know, or in through organized and praxis, we get um, we get some hope as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point that, you know, especially having class analysis is really key to this and that we need a working class struggle to really deal with this moment that we're in and it needs to be a major force. And especially, you know, the ruling class definitely needs to fear uh, that force, Jody. Um, revolution aside, let's just close this out before we get to callers by circling back to the current moment. Abortion rights have been evaporated. Uh, gay marriage is potentially next. Even the criminalization of same-sex relationships is on the docket. There's a lot of urgent things happening right now. Um, and, I guess, what potential do you see in beating back this wave of reaction, given the absence of a really strong uh, labor movement here? Um, I, I, I think the only answer is we have to build that movement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We Like any other option is, is horrible. And now we have to recognize that working class struggle is the same thing as the struggle for reproductive justice for um, for women and everyone that it's the struggle against um, you know homophobia and transphobia and those kinds of bigotry it's the struggle against racism that all of those together right we see more and more how it's one front many struggles but one front against this um, ruling class that's now trying to um, protect its base by, or, you know, it's, it's, it's own sort of you know, weak financial position by demonizing so many people. So I think, um, the only way we, we can win is if we build this struggle. Um, and that means that, you know, we've got to have people pouring into the streets. And I will say, I also think we also have to 
keep thinking strategically and organizationally about how do we also keep going? How do we also fight the long fight? And what are the forms that we need to fight that long fight? And what are the, um, how do we build the political power and the resilience necessary for that fight as well? That's exactly right, Jody. And, you know, it, it brings us back to something you said at the beginning of your explanation of neo-feudalism is that this, uh, this dystopian hellscape, I think that's the most appropriate way to describe it. I mean, there's no reason to find other words because that perfectly describes it. It's it's not the natural evolution of things, and it's not the way that will inevitably lead to the end of end of it. It's not going to be its own grave dirt. It's, it's what, how things are in the absence of major working class struggle fight back. Um, and so if you when you look around you, and you are disturbed and horrified and angered by all of the the despair and all of the crimes that you see around you that the this is what this is what this system brings when there is not a mass force of a people's movement and so how do we change that obviously it's you have to interject that that aspect by being a part of it yourself and i think there's it reminds me of that quote from mao i think of the something like if you don't hit it it doesn't fall and so we have to you know be as a force together to hit it and so let's get to some calls um just a reminder to callers please keep your comments so we can get to everyone uh with our on like a minute two minutes and take yourself off mute once i take you on and please uh, of course lots of different things to talk about if you could please keep your questions for jody and of the topic today so first we're going to hear from Schnarf, I believe, calling from New York City. Is that right? Yep, from New York. Uh, I wrote my questions down, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do them really quickly. I have three questions. So, the first thing I want to ask you is, why does third wave feminism offer any form of liberation if the likes of uh, Judith Butler have an acceptance of the circuits of capitalism and accepting that as there is no alternative to capitalism? Um, you know, if they're if they're stuck in what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism, what is the aspect of liberation in third wave feminism? My second question is that the concept of identity has had a reconciliation with neoliberalism, probably all the way back, even with Michel Foucault embracing Frederick Hayek and early, you know, aspects of neoliberalism in, in both England and Britain. Right. What are the gains that identity has had, and, you know, be they holidays, branding, you know, th- those kind of things. But what is a material aspect of this? You know, old Marxists had the mantra of equality. It seems like a lot of leftist discourse has a fetishism about identity. And how does that not like actually, you know, indicate that the the discussions that we should be having haven't been co-opted? And my third and last question is that, you know, we were talking about the, you know, basically the economy and the the proletariat. If 11 percent of the United States uh, States economy is actually manufacturing, union participation is in the toilet, you know, production doesn't really exist as much here as it does overseas. And most of what we produce are like kind of like Carl Polanyi's fictitious commodities, is the idea of the proletariat no longer viable? And is it more like what Professor Guy Standing calls the precariat and the early signs that feudalism has actually just kind of already been here for the last, like, probably 20, 30 years? Great question, um, Sharf. Yeah, thanks for those. Um, I'm going to start. And with I don't have a college one. degree, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I really a, don't. A, I think that shit is funny. 
um, so I think um, I, precariat's a super interesting term. Um, one of the things that is useful about it is it that just as you said, it lets us think about changes in labor that have happened over the last. 20 or 30 years. I also um, sometimes use an expression like proletarianized serfs. Um, and I, I, I kind of like that way of thinking about it because the majority of jobs in all of the so-called developed countries, like we're talking 70 to 80% of the jobs in the developed countries are in service sector jobs now. So we're societies of servants with large scale um, servant classes. So, um, you know, if, but but we're, what we get when we think about that is we get to start recognizing how um, how work has changed and how the struggles in organizing workers are harder and different, but also how class struggle is never only confined to a point of production or the workplace, right? Class struggle is also tenant struggle, struggles around rents, it struggles around health, um, like the struggle for medical care for all, or, you know, national health in the UK. I mean, these are class struggles, the struggles for um, against inflation and high prices and for, you know, the, the um, price fixing. These are also class struggles. So my um, so precariat can help um, illuminate that. Like, I'm not worried exactly about the um, the terminology there, but I think it's important to recognize the wide array of sites where class struggle occurs um, on um, on identity um, stuff. You know, it's so. Interesting. My very first book was published in 1996, and it was called Solidarity of Strangers, Feminism After Identity Politics. Well, I kind of got the subtitle wrong, I think, because identity politics has been a major thing you know, for the last um, you know, 20, 25 years. And it was not after in 1996. Um, one of the things that's important is there, that has been an achievement of identity struggles is letting us have a better sense of the breadth of the working class and recognize that workers um, come in um, all sorts of different um, shapes, sizes, ethnicities, citizenship categories, um, genders, and so on. And so that is an achievement. Um, it can also be one of the ways that struggles are derailed and divided. And we've also seen that happen on the left. But I think more and more people have recognized that the necessity of victory in any struggle depends on the unity of all the struggles. And then on third, like I wouldn't associate third wave feminism just with one thinker. I mean, there are lots of young women who were involved in getting their um, first organizing legs together. And for them, you know, they like thinking of themselves as third wave feminist. Um, I, I do think that Butler has done some important work in highlighting how gender has been a site of struggle where the far right in various countries is using um, battles around gender to pursue their own right wing family policies, their own. Uh, uh, yeah, their right wing family policies. And that that's very useful. Thank you, Schnarf, for taking the time to write out that uh, very well-developed list of questions for Jody. Eli, we got you on the line. Where are you calling from? Got to take yourself off of mute. 
It is a little microphone button on the bottom. Eli, you got <laughs> Eli five seconds You've been before on I for boot so you. Eli, we want to hear <laughs> from okay, you. Eli, we're no. booting okay, Eli, we're okay. So Eli, come back and we'll put you at the top of the queue. Come back on. We'll bump you to the top. Brady, you're next. Where are you calling from, Brady? Uh, thanks for dropping a dose me. on a Thursday. And Professor, <laughs> thanks for taking our questions for us. Very much appreciated. I like what you said about arbitration eroding democracy. It's a very cool perspective. And I was wondering if you would consider, if you would uh, agree that rapists have more reproductive rights than women in like places like Texas these days. And I was, I'd say it'd be nice. I'd just like to reach out to the international community like NATO and stuff to put some sanctions on us for what's going on right now. <laughs> I think that's great. And that's it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I, I, I think that's a, a fantastic slogan. And since I'm, I'm currently in the UK, I'm going to keep um, um, bringing this up. When I, there have been some um, different discussions around the Ukraine war that have come up. And I kept saying, like, if you think this is about Europe, then you guys should really call for the, you know, kicking the U.S. out of NATO. And then you can have your own you know, European <laughs> structure. I, um, I, I think, yeah, like encouraging um, the rest of Europe to put sanctions on the U.S. is a great call. Yeah, I've always talked about BDSing the United States, you know, of oh, course, totally. of course, advocating BDS against Israel. But we have to generate some sort of divestment campaign against our military machine. And, you know, the whole boycotting um, advocacy really, really needs to come home to roost, I think. Don't let the U.S. in the Olympics. <laughs> <Here we go. laughs> Eli, you're back on the line with a second chance. Don't screw it up. <laughs> Hi, can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, so awesome show today. Thank you so much, Abby, Mike, and Jody. You're all so <laughs> amazing. You've really helped me with my political development. Uh, I actually inspired me to join a revolutionary communist party a couple of years back and get involved in the struggle, which has helped me so much with getting past despair and hopelessness. Um, I, I really liked what Jody had to say about not being overly determinist, uh, how socialism is possible through struggle, but that it's not inevitable. And that, you know, at least for the past few decades, we've been losing the struggle. Um, and I think one of the reasons why is, well, so like I've lived paycheck to paycheck my whole life and so have my parents, their whole adult life. But I don't have kids and I have a good support system and family and friends and an OK job. So I'm able to participate in, in political work regularly um, but you kind of touched on this in your discussion uh, that the most poor, the most oppressed elements of the American working class, at least right now, really have the most to lose in a lot of ways because of mass incarceration and other kinds of state repression. They're, you know, terrified of police and the government don't have any free time, don't have any money. And as a result of all of this are, you know, oftentimes not able or willing to join the struggle. But, you know, these people are also the necessary element if we're going to win a socialist revolution in this country. So, uh, you know, what are some of the political so what are some of the potential strategies for helping the most marginalized elements of the working class enter the revolutionary movement and take a leading role in it in spite of all these setbacks? Are there any historical or theoretical examples that we can look to for this? Oh, that's a, that's a big one and a hard one. Um, I will. I'll just point out to something most recent in our in our all of our experience, right? Like the summer of 2020, that 35 million people protested that summer in the U.S. That was the largest 
um, protest movement in American history. I think that maybe because it's so recent, we don't give it the kind of, of um, kind of respect or props that it deserves. But people who had never protested before came out in outrage against the attacks on black lives and the widespread racist police murder. And so I think that knowing that um, they having confidence that people will come out when they can might be, you know, one thing that we we can do. And I think other times is, you know, also, and this is something we all know is, but like create welcoming spaces. Um, you know, nothing is less welcoming than um, sort of trendy leftists in their own social clique. And it's, uh, you know, a lot better to try to, I mean, it's not always easy, um, but, you know, to create welcoming spaces and meet people where they are. But uh, I think for the most part, it's like, you know, it's definitely the a challenge, um, as Eli said. Eli, you also said something that really struck me as very relevant to our kind of overall discussion of diagnosing this era and moment that we're in of neo-feudalism. You know, talking about living paycheck to paycheck, I mean, that's a very precarious economic position to be in. It means that you are working just for your basic necessities of survival, but you're not really able to buy yourself nice things that you may want. You're not able to pursue certain hobbies that may be too expensive. You're not really able to take vacations and travel to, to places you may want to explore. You are still extremely limited. And also, you are on the precipice of, of deep poverty because if you have a health emergency, a car emergency, you lose your job, you're really always t- living paycheck to paycheck. As I mentioned before, 64% of Americans do. You're always teetering on the edge. So it's, uh, of course, extremely precarious position to be in. But as you mentioned, you almost feel kind of privileged to be in the situation you are and that people who live paycheck to paycheck can feel like well you know actually i don't got it that bad because you know that it can actually get so much worse and so that's such a weird feature of today is that you can be and i've i've been that for most of my life too this paycheck to paycheck situation or you know going into debt because you are less than paycheck to paycheck but still somehow feel that you're like a privileged american because you are not actually at the the bottom the very bottom that you could be I think that's, I, I was so glad that you um, said that. That's just like amazing. It also connects with like, how do we find these, basically, we, we, I think in our whole discussion, we've talked about at least two different kinds of hope. The kind of hope that makes us sort of think that things are okay. And then the hope that leads us to um, kind of, to try to um, organize, to contest and change things. But I mean, this is, that was amazing. Like, you're right. Like, like, it's incredible that living paycheck to paycheck is considered um, a pretty okay and good position to be in. Oh, man. Um, John, we got you on the line. Where are you calling from, John? I'm calling from Iowa. And oh, sorry. I, I had you on mute. You, you, didn't, <laughs> you didn't were right for unmuting yourself, but I didn't unmute you. So I, I blame myself for that. Start over again. I just said I was calling from Iowa Sweet. and I just wanted to sort of parrot what I, I, like I said, this exact same thing on Brianna Joy Gray's show just the other day about price fixing. And cause it was relevant to Iowa because the food crisis and price fixing are the same problem, not, not different problems here. And it's right in front of your face. So like, just to give an example of how much rent capture goes on, you, there's like a pagoda, a tiered system of it, like in the municipal level, Someone can open a gas station down there on Highway 20 that they, they single-handedly dropped the price of gas in town by about 10 or 15 cents because everybody had to come down to meet it because they weren't gouging. 
So that means that that 10 or 15 cents out of every gallon you put in your car is not going to labor. It's not going to capital or even natural resources. It's going to somewhere else. It's going to sexually rent extraction. They're, they're renting you access to gasoline because they have a bottleneck and they've monopolized it. And then the state level in my state has heavily do with ethanol subsidies. And that's a whole rant of its own that I will not repeat because it would take way too long. But it's, suffice it to say it destroys the topsoil and makes our whole state a one-trick pony. Uh, and then there's the national level one, which has to do with not longshoremen, but people who employ them. So they can take a, a smoke screen like COVID or Ukraine. You know, somebody comes into port and they say, oh, that's only $10,000 per crate to unload your ship. And what they've done is buy calls. I don't know if you know how options work, but you can buy puts and calls on your own company. And then you get your price gouged twice over. You get it, your gouge right then. And then when your stock, your futures go up, you bought calls on the futures on your own commodities and then you get it all over again times 10 because futures is really a, so literally a casino as opposed to day traders. And then there's your international level price fix, which is just the fact that OPEC is a price fixing organization. It exists so a supply hiccup in Turkey does not affect the price in Belgium. Just like the EU was the EUCC that exists so a supply hiccup in Turkey does not affect the price in Belgium. You know, like China is a price fixing on labor. That's why they devalue their currency is to fix the price on labor. And the Fed fixes the price on money. All prices are fixed. There's no such thing as capitalism. So this is why I'm always face palming when leftists think that Marx is the beginning and the end. Like he's been irrelevant for quite a long time now. Capitalism has been dead for a long time. There's no competition. It is feudalism on every tier. Because after all those tiers, how many cents of every gallon is going to rent? Is like the, the which how much is capital versus labor is an irrelevant conversation because like at my paycheck forget about what the surplus value of that my boss takes from me what I still get on my paycheck goes to rent capture after I get it it, it gets in my account for one day right and then rent capture rent capture rent, rent capture for all my subscriptions and whatever rent literal rent of course being the still the biggest one so yes it is feudalism. <laughs> Thank you, John, for that. Jody, you have uh, any comments on what he said? Um, I'm I'm always um, you know happy when I um, the categories that I'm using are resonating and that people like it, it, I find that really useful. It also um, you know makes me think a lot about um, whatever we do. We have to make sure that we think at an international level um, as well as like all the way through the different levels that um, John mentioned. And um, that the struggle has to be a struggle that um, addresses the imperialist structure of the international level, as well as the forms of exploitation, extraction, oppression, predation that are experienced at the other levels. Jody, I want to throw this in here because I wasn't it didn't really flow with our previous conversation, but I wanted your take on it because. Instead of using the term neo-feudalism, which makes perfect sense based on everything that we've just discussed, I feel like we hear the term fascism being thrown around a lot. And it it does seem interesting because it seems like no one can really define it um, and even describe what they mean by it. And for some reason, everyone 
seems to only be able to compare our era today to like these specific and unique moments of time, like Mussolini and Hitler. But like because people aren't goose stepping down the streets holding giant swastika flags, it becomes this kind of cartoonish and irrelevant comparison. And it's just interesting. It's like why? I mean, of course, we have some characteristics of these things, but we are in like a unique reality and we don't have to relegate to these nearly hundred year old expressions of fascism to like describe i mean i don't know maybe maybe you have a different opinion but it does seem interesting especially when you like hear that the most traditional um definition of fascism is like that merging of capital and government or whatever i think this is an interesting question and um so much of it to to my mind depends on how can we how are we applying the terms into what you know with what degrees of specificity because on you know on the left we sometimes get in the habit of saying anything that we don't like is fascist so that can be sort of fun in some circles but it may not bring a lot of precision 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 with it um i got really a, a little bit burnt out on the term during the trump years because i felt like the democrats and the liberals were calling Trump fascist all the time in order to tell the left, if this is fascist, you have to um, enter into a popular front with us in the um, defeat of fascism. And that it was a way to really kind of, um, I don't know, it was, I felt like the liberals were using that as a form of left coercion, particularly um, given how much they were trashing um, Bernie Sanders during that time. And so fascist, to me, didn't seem like it was naming anything. It was just having this kind of function. Um, that said, one of the, I, I think I mentioned, I have been doing some work. I've actually have a, um, a co-edited book, co-edited book coming out in October with um, Sharice Burden Stelly called Organized Fight Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writing. And one of the things that's really interesting and inspiring in um, some of the writing from the late 40s, through the early 50s is how the um, black communist women organizers will use terms like feudalism and fascism together to talk about the U.S. South as both a, you know, having um, feudal property relations and fascism that was combining white supremacy, capitalism and male supremacy. Like Claudia Jones is really explicit on this. So there's some ways that uh, fascism can help us think well about the the political um, formation that we're in. I just think we have to kind of be um, precise when we're using the terms. Completely agree. Thank you for that call. And we have one last caller, Kev, where are you calling from? Um, Kia ora. I'm calling from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Oh, wow. Very cool. What time is it there? Yeah, what what time is it? <laughs> uh, seven in the morning. Nice. Ah, cool. <laughs> You're in the future. Yeah. How is it? Is it still dystopian? <laughs> uh, it's all good in my room with the fire on. <laughs> um, outside of the room, you know, the rest of the world, well, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yes. Hey, um, Abby, I've always wanted to say hi to you, especially since you – were named uh, most dangerous woman in America by <laughs> Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's what a tag, eh? <laughs> the 
the fomenting radical discontent. I, I was single-handedly caused Trump's election. Who knew? Who knew that yeah. I had so much power? Yeah, cool. And uh, yeah, sort of. Yeah, you're bringing them, bringing America down in such a brilliant way. Five um, D chess. I've, yeah, I've been, um, I've been, or virtually all my life since when I was thirteen. President Kennedy was shot in the head. You know, you probably remember that, even though you weren't born. Um, and but all the events from there, whether it's Cuba, Vietnam, or anything like that, I have been absolutely appalled by America and and its exceptionalism and its its absolute need for world domination. It's it's shocking, eh? You're telling me. The choir, man. I mean, this is what the hell's going on here? How are people born and bred to be these uh, exceptionalist empire babies? It's definitely a diseased society, my friend, and it's very disturbing. And I ask myself every day how how do we wake up okay with this daily violence and subjugation that we externalize on the rest of the planet? It is just mind boggling every yeah. single day of my life. Kev, you got yeah, well, a you got a question well, for us? Um, I don't, well, it's, cool to it's okay if you don't. It's okay, okay if, you don't. if you don't. No, no, no. no what I'm what I'm trying that. to say is that uh, I'm just amazed and appalled at the moment by in 2022 how America has now dominated the language and have made has made everything so complicated and paradoxical. So the left and the right are in a concrete mixer, you know. Um, the, what's happened in Ukraine, um, the way they're saying it compared to what I would say was the reality or the way Ukraine talks about it or Russia talks about it or anywhere else, is it's just a mess. You, it's almost impossible to pick an opinion on that. But the topic of, of this thing, I've just come fresh from listening to CIA and LSD, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's part of, um, part of my history. Part of the good part of America that finally got out here was, um, I suppose all the drugs that, um, <laughs> that you would have- the U.S. Air Force. There was something yeah. good about our hegemony. We got the yeah. drugs. All the CIA's yeah, well, LSD got shipped to the, around the world. I guess that may have been good yeah, for well, people. Deep freeze. Uh, the Air Force was flying with deep freeze because they don't have to go through customs or anything. But they were bringing in all the good um, Sandos um, and other drugs from all over the world, you know. Um, and... Yeah, LSD and toothpaste tubes, eh? That sort of stuff. Yeah, man, it is uh, it is mind-boggling when you really think about the extent of uh, U.S. hegemony and cultural domination that, that extends far beyond just the political and economic subjugation. We're talking about just culture and general language. Um, it, it really is all-encompassing, and I appreciate your call, Kev. I'm glad that you have been hooked on dosed, that you're dosed on do- – you're overdosed on the show. And I appreciate you uh, you calling in. Um, everyone who called in had really great things to say. And Jody, you're incredible. I've learned so much from you. I hope to, to continue this conversation at a different time. Um, where can people go to learn more about you and follow your work? 
Um, honestly, they can just Google me. Um, they can Google <laughs> my name spelled J O D I. Um, there, there's a real estate agent in Canada also named Jody Dean, but um, <laughs> that she, she did not. Is write she a also book a called- communist. No, no. I um, she actually seems to be a religious conservative. Okay. But um, you know, there's funny. So there's actually people- <laughs> there's other Abby Martins out there. It's kind of funny. Like, what's isn't there another Abby Martin ath- Abby that's like a an athlete of some kind? Well, uh, yeah, I'm sure that there like, is. Who yeah, probably get- gets googled a lot or like yeah, <laughs> yeah she's probably like oh god I'm sure that sure my name would <laughs> anyway. Been- but if, if yeah, but Google the, like my like name that. and neo feudalism, um, a couple of of free pieces that are not firewalled can come up, and people can learn more about that. One was published in the um, online version of the LA Review of Books. I think it was 2020, um, but it's actually not hard to find. And then, um, you know, most of my um, you know books, the Communist Horizon and um, um, comrade and others will come up. So that'd be the best way, I think. So do you, are you working on a book that really packs all this together or have you already published something that's pretty comprehensive um, on this? I'm subject? working on a, on a book, even as we speak about neo-feudalism and just, um, met with my editor today. Oh, and, wow. um, yeah, this was very happy and good. So it's about three quarters of the way written. And I'm just really thrilled with, something Mike said earlier when um, he just put it so succinctly, it's like how things are in the absence of organized mass people's movement. And that might be now the tag phrase I'm going to use for describing this project. Cause I think that's really yeah. And Jody, you better put those, uh, those robots, um, being, oh my God! <laughs> being engineered by the you know virtual reality people in Bangladesh and stuff in the book. I'm looking out for it, Jody. We'll have to have you on again um, once the book is out. You're incredible. Thank you so much for your insight, your brilliance, for coming on Dosed. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Hi, uh, it's been really great. I appreciate it. I can have another word for your time, can Jody. And thanks again to all our listeners yeah. live on Colin. We love our live listeners. If you're not listening live and you're listening in the future on one of your streaming apps, join us live every week. Call in, be part of the fun, be part of the chat, be part of getting to see everyone's face who's talking. Do that by getting the app call in, subscribing to Dost, and see what our upcoming episodes are. Also, if you follow Abby Martin on Twitter, she always gives a heads up when the live shows are. Please spread the show, too, because this is a fucking killer episode, man, and we got to get this out there to as many people as possible. So please go on, rate the show, spread the show, tell your friends, baby, about Toast. I'm doing my best. I am Next week, of course, uh, another live episode for you. I'm going to take you out with... We don't know what it's going to be. <laughs> We're going to take you out with some fluorescent gray. The uh, track you heard at the beginning of the episode is a song called You by Anahedron. Get it on all your streaming apps. This is... Uh, fluorescent gray track i think a custom one for empire files right goodbye